All right, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we will be turning again to the book of Matthew, this time to chapter 6, as the Sermon on the Mount series continues. Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump down to verses 16 through 18. If you can uh, use a uh, Bible in front of you on the pew, you can find it on page 554. Again, this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and verses 16 through 18. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, Pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to be men to be fasting, but to your your Father who is in the secret place, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let's pray. God, we just ask this morning that as we look into the truth of your word, Lord, that you would uh, pierce our hearts. God, that as we uh, do the work of service and the work of prayer and the work of fasting, God, that we would uh, seek only your glory. And God, that we would only seek to please you and not men. May our hearts just be changed in Christ's name. Amen. Due to the uh, proliferation of lawsuits, many companies nowadays post warning labels on their products. Forbes magazine actually compiled a list of some of the dumbest warning labels ever put on some of those products. Here's a few that made the list. Nitol Sleep Aid. Their warning was, may cause drowsiness. Marks and Spencer Bread Pudding, their warning label said, product will be hot after heating. Rowinda Iron, their warning label said, do not iron clothes on body. Anybody ever try that? Didn't want to take your shirt off, and so you had something down here, and you put it on the iron. And you... I know that from experience. I hate to admit that. New Holland Small Tractor, their warning label simply said, avoid death. (laughs) And then they had this helpful drawing of a guy getting crushed by the bucket of the tractor. One of my favorites was a Staples letter opener, and it said, caution, blades are extremely sharp. Safety goggles recommended for a letter opener. I'm not sure I would want to use that. Although they, uh, they did find out that the warning was a package mislabel that they quickly corrected. Some warnings, let's be honest, they're just plain dumb. 
But it's also dumb to ignore certain warnings. In 2015, a man ignored just such warning. A sign that warned, no swimming, alligators. After ignoring, ignoring the pleas of the marina working workers and mocking the alligators, he jumped off the dock and seconds later was attacked and killed by a large alligator. So it's foolish to ignore some warnings. Last month, another person fell to their death in the Grand Canyon. This time, it was a man from Hong Kong who was apparently taking a selfie on an overlook when he slipped and fell off 1,000 feet edge, foot edge to his death. This prompted then another warning from the National Park Service. In a statement, the agency reminded visitors, have a safe visit by staying on designated trails and walkways, always keeping a safe distance from the edge of the rim and staying behind railings and fences at overlooks. It's foolish to ignore some warnings. Matthew chapter 6 opens with such a warning. Jesus says, take heed, or we could translate that, beware. And it simply means to watch out. There's danger ahead, like a bridge being out of order or a a road being underwater. And therefore, to ignore such a warning is both foolish and it is dangerous. Jesus goes on to warn us of a very particular danger when it comes to practicing our righteousness. It's a warning that we want to hear this morning. It's a warning that we also want to pay particular attention to. The danger Jesus is warning us about is found in the very first verse of this new section here in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice it again what Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 6. I want to read it from the English Standard Version this time. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so taking this warning here in verse 1 with what Jesus says now in the rest of this section in verses 2 through 18, here's the big idea that we're going to see this morning. Notice this on the screen in your notes. God rewarded righteousness of kingdom citizens. And that is God rewarded righteousness lives for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. That's the big idea that Jesus is communicating to us here in this section. This is a new section, as we said. So how does this section now in the Sermon on the Mount connect with the previous section that we just looked at. Jesus is still talking about the righteousness of kingdom citizens. But now he's going to do it in a different way, from a different point of view. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us to a righteousness which must exceed or surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Or we will, he says, we will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Of course, the only way that we can ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and render unto God the perfect righteousness that he requires to enter into his kingdom is to receive it not on our own efforts, 
but to receive it by grace. To receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the good part of it. With that, with this, when this takes place in our hearts, when we receive the righteousness of Christ by faith through His grace, with that citizenship now comes the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And it's by this Holy Spirit then that enables us to then live out the righteousness of Jesus Christ that He is calling us to live out here in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, there are times we will fail in living this out. But here's the point Jesus is making. As kingdom citizens, we will live this out. We will practice, in other words, righteousness. The righteousness that we have of Jesus Christ. However, Jesus now warns us. And the reason is because this is where the danger lies. For once you begin to practice the righteousness of God, once you are living a life full of, we might say it this way, righteous deeds or acts of righteousness, it is very easy to begin practicing your righteousness, as Jesus says, before people. In order to be seen by them, to do so for the glory of self instead of the glory of God. The problem is we're often more concerned about what other people think of us than what God thinks of us. We can fall into the trap of doing the right things but not doing them for the right reasons. Instead of living for the glory of God, what we're really after is simply the glory of self. However, God specifically says, Jesus says here, that God does not reward that kind of what he calls hypocritical righteousness or superficial righteousness. The God-rewarded righteousness is what we want to live out. But this God-rewarded righteousness comes with a warning that we need to pay attention to. So let's look at it. Let's unpack the warning here. Notice that number one is to beware of practicing righteousness for show. Beware of practicing your righteousness for show. Again, the warning is found in verse 1. Look at it one more time. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, you got to admit, that is a loaded statement. Especially when you consider that we all have this tendency, this propensity to play to the crowd and do things, even what we would consider religious things, to gain the approval and the applause of people. In fact, that phrase, to be seen, that Jesus uses, is related to the same word from which we get our English word, theater. And so Jesus is saying, beware of practicing your righteousness as a performance for people. Why? Because Jesus says such righteousness is fake. It doesn't reflect the real righteousness that we receive from Christ. It's about putting on a show of righteous deeds for the glory of self instead of the glory of God. And guess what? There's a reward for that. It's the approval and applause of people. That's your reward. You perform for people, 
and you get your reward from people, but not from God. And so Jesus warns us about practicing our righteousness simply for show. That's what the Pharisees did. In fact, Jesus tells them what God thought about their performance. And let me tell you, the review was not good from Jesus. It was bad. In fact, it was a rebuke of them. And in his rebuke of the Pharisees' performance, it is a warning to us. And to help us understand how this warning applies to our lives, Jesus then gives three examples of religious righteousness. He gives giving, he talks about praying, and then fasting. These three were considered some of the most important pillars of Judaism in Jesus' day. These righteous deeds, listen, they are good. They're necessary for expressing our devotion to God. But Jesus puts a warning label on them. We need to make sure, though, that we read the warning on each of these three correctly. Because Jesus is not telling us not to practice our righteousness with acts of devotion. In fact, Jesus assumes something in this whole section here. He assumes that as kingdom citizens, we will be participating in these things. He assumes that we will give. We will pray. We will fast. In fact, did you notice he says it's when, not if you do these things. Why? Because being righteous will always lead to doing righteous acts of devotion. Faith leads to works. Love leads to obedience. Being, in other words, being a kingdom citizen leads to doing kingdom citizen works. And Jesus is not warning us not to let anyone see us practice our righteousness either. He doesn't say it's wrong to be seen giving, praying, and fasting. Rather, he says it's wrong to give in order to be seen. It's wrong to pray in order to be seen or to fast in order to be seen so that people will give you their approval and their applause. So with this warning in mind now, let's see what Jesus says about these three examples of giving, praying, and fasting. First of all, It's give without fanfare. Give without fanfare. The issue Jesus is addressing in all three examples, in other words, is motive. He's talking about our motives here. Why do you do what you do? In other words, why did you even come to church today? Why are you singing the songs that we sing? Why did you give? Giving to the poor... Uh, In some translations, it says charitable deeds or or your alms, giving of alms. That's all relation to giving to the poor. And that was a common and expected practice for, for the Jews of Jesus' day. But, of course, the problem came when the Pharisees made this giving. They made a show of it. This is why Jesus says in verse 2 what he does. Look at it. He says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, such as giving to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. In fact, hypocrites, you you may have noticed by now, that's one of Jesus' favorite words for the Pharisees. He's always calling them, it seems, the Pharisees' hypocrites. He says, so don't be 
uh, before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So what Jesus is doing here in verse 2, it's rather funny. He's ridiculing the way the Pharisees turn giving into a public performance. He pictures, Jesus here in this verse, he pictures a pompous Pharisee on his way to put money in the special box at the synagogue. Or perhaps he's even picturing taking his gift to a, a poor person on the street and giving it to him. But in doing that, in front of him, marched the trumpeters, blowing their horns as they walked, and quickly attracting a crowd for the purpose of gaining their applause and their approval. Now, whether the Pharisees sometimes did this literally or whether Jesus was simply painting an amusing picture, it doesn't really matter. In either case, what Jesus is doing here is he is rebuking their motive for giving. And he called them hypocrites for it. Why? Because they made a show of giving to the poor as if they were really concerned about the poor. But in reality, all they cared about was themselves. They wanted to be praised by people. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, to stand with a, with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand is the posture of hypocrisy. And then Jesus tells us the right way to give. And that right way is the way of secrecy. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, again, we've already seen in Matthew in chapter 5 that Jesus uses a lot of extreme language to make a point. It's, it's, it's called hyperbole. And again, he's doing the same thing here. He's using an extreme illustration to emphasize a point, to emphasize the right motive in our giving. And that is to give in secret and then forget about it. There's nothing wrong. Jesus, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that there's anything wrong with public giving. That is an act of worship such as when the offering plates are passed here in our worship service at the end of the service and you place your giving in the offering plate. It's it's corporate, it's public. It's not saying that's wrong. In fact, you see public acts of giving in, in an act of worship. You see that all the time, like in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament as well. But there's plenty wrong. And this is the issue that Jesus is addressing with giving in public Because your motive is to impress people. John Stott writes it, and he says, The question is not so much what the hand is doing, but what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing it. There are three possibilities. Either we are seeking the praise of men, or we preserve our secrecy, but quietly congratulating ourselves for what we're doing, or we are desirous of the approval of our divine Father alone. Now, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit, it is easy here to poke fun at the Pharisees. It is so easy to poke fun at them. But I also have to admit that our Christian, if I can say it this way, Pharisaism of today is not so amusing. We may not employ a a literal marching band to blow fanfare when we give. 
But we all still like to what? Blow our own horn. We fall to the same temptation as the Pharisees did here. We, we like to draw attention to ourselves and specifically to our acts of righteousness and specifically to this one of giving in order to be praised by people, to look better in front of them. But Jesus says, listen, give without fanfare. That's your motive. So when the offering plate is passed by, don't cough (coughs) loudly as you drop in your envelope. Don't call a press conference when you make a charitable donation to this organization such as Rachel House. Don't announce the amount of your contribution on social media or that you're even giving. That's the idea here. Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. And then number two, Jesus says, pray without pride. Pray without pride. And so from giving to the poor, which for the Jews was the most sacred of all religious duties, Jesus now turns his attention to prayer, which was a close second. Look what he says here in verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And here's why. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray... Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So what Jesus says to the Pharisees, let me tell you, at first glance, it sounds good. In fact, it sounds fine. He says, they love to pray. That is a great attribute. But unfortunately, it is not prayer which they love, nor the God they are supposed to be praying to. No, they love themselves in the opportunity which public praying gives them to parade themselves in front of people. So once again, Jesus calls them hypocrites because their real motivation wasn't to seek God's face, but rather to seek the faces of people so they might be seen by as many people as possible. Again, Jesus' concern here is praying to impress people. He's not forbidding public prayer or even corporate prayer. If so, the early church didn't get the memo because they frequently gathered for corporate prayer. And Jesus certainly isn't saying that we should not pray in public. Rather, he's warning us against an attitude that makes prayer into a means of you receiving praise instead of God. Since Jesus talks most about prayer in this section, in fact, it's 11 verses total, verses 5 through 15 here, I thought we would do the same. And so we will come back next Sunday to this section on prayer and look at it next Sunday Number three, he then tells us fast without notice. Fast without notice. So we have give without fanfare, pray without pride, and now fast without notice. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline we seldom talk about, and very few of us probably practice. I know that is true of myself. 
Nevertheless, look what Jesus says in verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now the Pharisees, their tradition, it was custom for them in Jesus' day to fast twice a week. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But when they fasted, they looked miserable doing it. And they drew attention to themselves because of that. In fact, some of the Pharisees would actually neglect personal hygiene. Or they would cover their heads with sackcloth. Others would even disfigure their faces. And that doesn't mean literally disfigure, like with a knife. It means they would, they would smear their faces with ashes in order to look pale and gloomy. They would do all of this so that their fasting would be noticed by everyone. In order that they might appear to be holy. Exceptionally holy. I'm fasting. And you can see it all over my face now. You need to feel sorry for me. But also at the same time you're feeling sorry for me. You should see me as holy. But as with giving and praying. Jesus says don't be like them. Don't be like those hypocrites. Instead Jesus says just act normal when you fast. And then he even tells us what that looks like. He, you know like wash your face. Put on normal clothes and don't draw attention to yourself when you fast. In other words, don't announce it on social media that you're now on a fast. There's no need for that. Again, quoting John Stott, he says, For the purpose of fasting is not to advertise ourselves, but to discipline ourselves. Not to gain a reputation for ourselves, but to express our humility before God and our concern for others in need. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there was only one time per year when God's people were called to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And since that day has now been fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection, there's no longer any command for us to fast. However, fasting, even Jesus here in this text seems to be assumed even though it is not commanded in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus assumed that his disciples would fast after his death and resurrection. He tells us in Matthew 9, 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, since we're talking about fasting, and a lot of us probably don't participate in it, what is fasting? Well, in Scripture, fasting is typically a time of of simply abstaining from food for the purpose of devoting one's self and one's time to the Lord. Fasting can be extended beyond just food. It can be extended to include abstaining from things like eating and drinking and even sexual activity or even things like social media for a designated period of time. So you can fast from Uh, from about anything, but strictly speaking, scripturally, it was fasting from food and drink. Why, though, should we fast? 
Well, the Bible provides a number of reasons for fasting. It might be for repentance and mourning over sin, over your sin, or even the sins of our country. It might be to seek God's direction, his guidance, his wisdom for a particular situation in your life. You might even fast because you're wanting to not only seek his direction, but actually to seek his blessing for something going on. According to John Piper, he says, We fast to nourish our hunger for God and to reduce our hunger for the world. In other words, we ought to fast because our physical appetites are so intense that they threaten to overwhelm our hunger for God. One commentary says it this way. Douglas O'Donnell writes, fasting is what we need. For in fasting, we essentially say this. I do not live for my appetites, whether it's my physical appetites, my sexual appetites, my material appetites. Therefore, with self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to stop all this incessant nibbling at the table of the world. I do not live for my appetites. But much more than that, I live for God in his blessing. This is why the Puritans, who fasted often, they called it soul fattening. In other words, fasting is about creating an appetite for God, not for fulfilling a hunger for applause from people. Now, because Jesus cares about us as his disciples, his followers... He cares about our motives. And that's why he warns us about practicing our righteousness for show. In other words, for a performance for people. And so he tells us, hey, give without fanfare, pray without pride, and fast without notice. But we see a second warning as well here in this section of Matthew chapter 6. And that is to be aware of hiding hypocrisy in your heart. Now, all of us, in fact, there's not a single person here that this would not be true of. All of us, when confronted with the hypocrisy of someone else, let me tell you, we recoil in disgust. We despise hypocrisy. Even the world despises hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is a sticky wicket. It's easy to despise in others, but it is so much harder to see it in ourselves. In fact, usually the hypocrisy that we spot in other people is the variety that marks our lives more than we realize. And that's what's so terrifying about hypocrisy. It hides deep in the recesses of our hearts but it always comes out. Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrisy. And as we've already alluded to, especially about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In fact, three times in this section, Jesus tells us not to be like them, not to be like these hypocrites when we practice our righteousness. Look at it here again. In verse 2, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the what? The hypocrites. Now, that word hypocrite 
is a word that comes from the world of the theater. And it suggests the nature of the problem with the Pharisees. In other words, their acts of righteousness was just a performance. This word hypocrite was originally used for Greek actors who performed on a stage and rotated through various masks in order to play different roles in the play. They were pretending to be something they were not. And so what a vivid picture we have of the religious hypocrite. He pretends to be one thing, but all the while he is really something altogether different. They come across as righteous, but it's just an act. It's all for show. Their outward actions suggest that their whole heart is focused on the Lord, but their inward desires are for the recognition and praise of people. The mask simply conceals, or tries to, their motives. Their true motives in the heart. And this is the danger of hypocrisy. In fact, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. When hypocrisy is in the heart, then image management becomes the priority when practicing righteous deeds. In other words, we focus more on managing our image before people than we do cultivating our relationship with God. And as a result of our image management, our inner life becomes disconnected from our outer life. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 15, where he writes in verses 7 through 9, he says, You hypocrites, speaking again to the Pharisees, Isaiah, that is the prophet Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Now, let's just stop here and let's be honest. We all, we all participate in image management. Image management is something we all do, whether we realize it or not. We're all tempted to keep up appearances. We're all tempted to wear these religious masks. We're all tempted to make it about what people see. And this is why Jesus says, Practicing, practice your righteousness from a heart that is devoted to God and his glory. In all three examples, you know, the example of giving, praying, and fasting, Jesus basically says, Hey, put your focus on God and not self. One of the most helpful questions we can probably ask when it comes to practicing righteous deeds is, who am I doing this for? Whose glory am I seeking? And if we're seeking God's glory, then we will keep him as our audience. And we will live to please him alone. This leads us to the remedy for so much of our struggle with image management. Notice this in your notes. The remedy here is to know God as your heavenly father. It starts right there. To know God as your heavenly father. And then to know that you are eternally secure in your relationship with him. What's interesting 
is that in these 18 verses here in this section, do you realize God is called Father no less than 10 times? That is not by accident on Jesus' part. Jesus is giving us a hint here. Jesus is hinting that the real trouble with the hypocrite is that he does not know God as who? As his heavenly Father. He is therefore insecure before God. And therefore, he seeks security in what other people think about him. He's not real in his acts of righteousness before people because he has no real relationship with God Almighty. He doesn't know God as his heavenly Father. And this was Jesus' biggest problem with the Pharisees. They distorted the very character of God because they didn't know God as their heavenly father. You see, they turned God into a tyrant, into a slave master or slave driver who did nothing but place restrictive burdens on his people. They distorted the truth about God's grace and mercy. In fact, they hated the thought that God would show mercy to sinners who had broken his law. In fact, you realize the story of the prodigal son and the older brother and the father is in this context. It's set in this context, and the emphasis is all about that. The Pharisees equaled the oldest son who hated that his father welcomed home his younger brother with love and forgiveness. They resented that. Why? Because that older brother had no relationship with the father. Therefore, he didn't know the father. He didn't know his character. He didn't know his heart and his mercy and grace that he was all about. The Pharisees had never entered into a gracious relationship with God themselves. And as a result, they kept others from knowing his grace and forgiveness through all their man-made laws and rituals and and loopholes. And you got it. But it's only when... We know God as our heavenly Father that we can be secure in his presence. That I'm already approved by God. I have his favor according to the Beatitudes that we looked at in Matthew chapter 5. His blessing is on my life. I have the righteousness of Christ. And he no longer sees me as a sinner, but he sees me as a son. And as a daughter, I'm one of his. I'm in his kingdom. I'm in his eternal family, and he is my father. The Pharisees knew nothing of that. Notice the third and final warning Jesus gives. Beware of seeking rewards from people. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of his warning in verse 1? He said, otherwise you have no reward from your father in heaven. Why is that? Because you already have your reward. You say, what reward? The applause and approval of people. You see, Jesus is warning us here. He's telling us, you perform for people, you get your reward from people, but not from God. And Jesus' language is very decisive here. In fact, this word for reward, it's a very technical term for commercial transactions, and it means to receive a sum in full and to give a receipt for it. And so people's praise is all you will ever get. God does not reward people pleasers because they rob him of the glory that he alone is worthy to give. 
Alfred Plummer put it like this. They receive their pay then and there. They receive it in full. God owes them nothing. They were not giving but buying. They wanted the praise of men. They paid for it and they got it. The transaction is ended and they can claim nothing more. And so Jesus says, in light of that, take heed. Be warned. Pay attention. In other words, you will lose your heavenly reward from God if you live to receive an earthly reward from people. But don't miss this. There's a better source and a better reward. Notice this. God the Father sees, and God the Father rewards, and His reward is way better than the reward we get from people. In fact, I love this about Jesus. Three times in this section, He says in verse 4, verse 6, and 18, He says the exact same thing. And your Father, who sees in secret, will what? Will reward you openly. Now, the focus that Jesus is emphasizing here is on the source of the reward. And the reward comes from whom? God. God the Father. And therefore, the quality of the reward. It's way better. In fact, it is a reward upgrade. How many of you like upgrades? And the free ones are all the better, aren't they? This is a reward upgrade. A big time upgrade. Those rewards, yes, they include even present blessings today, and they certainly include eternal blessings. In fact, we know that because in this very same chapter, when we get to verse 20, what does Jesus talk about? Laying up earthly treasures, eternal rewards. Now, some people might think to themselves about now, well, man, is it okay to seek rewards from God? We shouldn't seek rewards from God. But what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus says rewards are good and even necessary. In fact, Jesus persistently uses the motive of God-given rewards to help believers live for God. And here Jesus promises that we will be rewarded by our heavenly Father who sees us practicing our righteousness out of devotion to Him rather than for the praise of people. This is God-rewarded righteousness. A righteousness that lives for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. And as you strive to live for the glory of God, know, know that God gives you motivations for perseverance as a kingdom citizen here on this earth. That motivation is this. And Jesus emphasizes it three times. God sees everything that you're doing. And God rewards. And his rewards are way better than anything that you could ever receive from people. So let me conclude by encouraging you, encouraging myself, to examine our hearts, especially since we all struggle with hypocrisy. But I want to end by letting you know that there is good news in this struggle. In fact, notice it here. You can be set free from hypocrisy by the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Yes, what Jesus says here about hypocrisy, it is rather convicting. But there's good news in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ's finished work, do you realize, has already and eternally secured for us the pleasure and the praise and the applause and the approval of God the Father on our lives. In other words, I don't have to work for it. I don't have to try to earn God's approval and applause anymore. I've already been declared justified. I'm righteous in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ. Christ's finished work reminds us that God sees us and knows us as we really are. And he still loves us. It's beautiful. We have no reason to pretend and act as something we are not before God who sees all and who judges the heart. Christ's finished work releases us from the bondage of pretense in pleasing man to give and serve and sacrifice all for God's glory and the good of others. Christ's finished work ensures that all who are in him will gain an eternal inheritance. Listen, it's good news. It's great news to know that you are approved by God the Father through your faith in Jesus Christ. And it is good news to know that we can be righteous in the sight of God today when we put our faith in the finished work of Christ. The question is, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you come to that point in that place in your life where you recognize, listen, I can't measure up. I need what only Jesus can give me. I need what Christ has already done because I can't achieve it on my own. I need his finished work on the cross. And if that's you here this morning, man, we're going to have a response time. Cry out to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to save you. Go to God the Father and ask him to save you through the work of Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, we love you and oh how we need you. God, we pray that we would open our hearts to you and allow you to convict, to speak, to uncover, and to reveal our motives. And Lord, that we would be quick to repent and not to push to the side what you're speaking to us about. Lord, thank you for loving us. Through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The music team's going to play a chorus, and as they do, won't you respond? Respond where you're sitting, right there in prayer.